It's not calling you Josh Frydenberg, it's calling you Dosh Frydenberg. Under the coalition, taxes for hard-working Australians will always be lower. Well, g'day, listeners, and welcome once again to the Two Jacks, uh, going all the way around the world. But we're starting in Australia uh, <clears throat> today because there's big things going on. And joining me, as usual, is uh, Hong Kong Jack. G'day, mate. How are you? I'm excellent, mate. Just two things before we start. This, these are matters arising out of the minutes of last, uh, the last minutes meeting. arising, yeah. right? Um, well, matters the, arising. Yes. Uh, first is for Lawrence Farmer. Lawrence, um, uh, whatever the merits of your argument, Lawrence, the Dutch population have voted in a regional election, and the biggest single party is going to be the Farmers Group. Um, and these regional, election, regional elections will determine the makeup of the Dutch Senate. I didn't know they had a Senate, to be quite honest. Um, uh, and uh, so it seems that the uh, getting rid of the nitrogen out of the fertiliser uh, uh, campaign has not resonated all that well with the population of the, of the Netherlands. Yes, and of course, you're referring there to a letter from Lawrence where he talked about uh, these matters becoming very, very serious for the Dutch population in terms of their drinking water. But also, Jack, it would seem that here we have a political group that it actually is for the farmers because the National Party here... <laughs> <laughs> they've been given a bugger about the farmers for a very long time. No, They're all into the miners. They've been agrarian socialists forever. Um, the, um, the other other bit is the we were talking about the um, boat arrivals on the coast of the United Kingdom, um, and we were we were arguing about how many of them were Afghanis. The Afghan the people from Afghanistan make up the the second, second biggest yeah, second biggest group. Highest. But that makes them eighteen percent of the of the total for the year, um, and the more important figure in all of that data that was from the BBC, uh, and I'd recommend that Jack um, don't trust the uh, human rights organisations; they are just barrackers. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, most important figure is that the approval rate for applications for asylum in the UK is about sixty four percent. In France, it's 25%, and Germany, about 45%. And I suspect, although I haven't been able to find this figure, that the approval rate for people who arrive by boat, that is, unauthorised arrivals, because they will arrive without papers, I suspect the approval rate for them will be like it was in Australia, which will be 95%. And that, right. is, that is the sugar on the table. Well, the sugar on the table, Jack, I've just got to remind you that I had a bit of a look at some of these figures myself, and I did, yes, note that uh, the Afghan uh, unscheduled arrivals uh, in the UK were second on the list after, I think, the Albanians, I think, was the number one. Um, but um, The Albanians are easily the biggest number. Yes, uh, but I also noticed that uh, in terms of unscheduled arrivals, France, 436,000. UK eighty nine thousand. Yeah. So the if there's is, sugar on the table, it's in France, isn't it? No. The, 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 the difference is that the French send them back. The people who are a bit smarter say, "I want to get to England, where I won't get sent back." Okay. All right. Okay. Well, of course, we uh, 
I totally lied about us starting with Australia because uh, Jack's just dragged us off into the UK and (laughs) Europe. Uh, But uh, we have a a state election this week. I haven't uh, trundled off to the polls. I will be voting early, uh, possibly this afternoon um, or definitely Thursday because I I don't like queuing Jack. Um, but I, I, I'm, a, I'm a firm believer that, that we all should vote on the same day. Ah, oh, rubbish, Jack. Rub, absolutely rubbish. You, you know, you, 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 people with disabilities, uh, all sorts of people who just don't need to stand in great long queues winding around dismal um, uh, school playgrounds and people flogging bloody uh, uh, unknown pieces of meat uh, in uh, in in. in uh, uh, unidentifiable pieces of meat in pieces of bread. I don't go. It's all for part it. of the fun. Yeah. Well. Anyway, so it's been uh, early. Early voting's been on for a little while here. Now the uh, the bookies have scheduled uh, or bookies have set their market dollar uh, fifteen for a Labor win. Now that's that is the 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 party to form government. Um, uh, Labor is a, a buck fifteen and. Uh, I think sports bet's got uh, the coalition at $6. So very, very short uh, favourite is Chris Mins and Labor. And that's because, Jack, they um, are more likely to form a form of government, whether it's majority or minority. Yes. Um, uh, that's the distinction with the betting um, uh, odds that have been uh, that have been put up. Um, as far as I can tell... Uh, the Liberals are not going to be able to get a majority. Um, uh, that's unlikely. Very unlikely. And, it, and it's fairly unlikely that Labor will either, um, mm. but they probably will be able to form a government. Well, there are three Greens in the lower house, so you'd expect them to support Labor. But what might muddy the waters a little bit, Jack, is that we've got probably, I'd say at least two seats going to what we might loosely call the teal independence groups uh, from the from the coalition, um, which might just make it a little bit more difficult for Labor to form government. But, um, yeah, it, it, it looks like a, a little bit of a recasting of the, uh, of the federal election last year where uh, the coalition, the Liberals in particular, in some of their blue ribbons might lose them. I saw... A photo of our friend. You and I were the foundation members of the Elizabeth Farrelly fan club. We were. Uh, we used to, we used to enjoy her Thursday columns. Yes, uh, there, was, there was always the challenge of working out just what she was talking about. Um, and um, She's I, having a crack. She's having a crack. And she looked to be in a kind of a teal-coloured um, um, poster, I saw. Is she a teal? Well... It's not really teals as it was last year. So there's, there's this sort of loose um, uh, loose band of independents who I don't know that we'd cast anybody as uh, belonging to the same ideology as uh, as, as Elizabeth Farrelly, whatever well, that is. How could you work out what it was? <laughs> whatever that is, yeah. Um, but, but uh, yes, that, that, look, that is probably the, the coalition's greatest threat, that they face these... Um, uh, progressive thinking, shall we say, progressive mm. thinking, um, um, independence in in uh, liberal safe seats, and they will lose a couple of them, I would say, minimum. Yeah. Mm. So yeah, I, uh, I think there, there is one difference between this state election and the uh, last federal election um, is that um, uh, Dominic Perrottet is not on the nose in the way that Scott Morrison was. 
I, I think that's absolutely right. But at the at the core of it is twelve years of government. And, yeah, that's right. Oh, and, oh, oh. and and that's that's not necessarily a reflection on Perrottet's uh, capacity as a premier. There's a bit of there's a bit of uh, there've been some there've been some balls ups as you'd expect in any government that's been around for twelve years. They bought. Trains don't fit in tunnels, and all sorts of and balls ups have occurred. Uh, but generally speaking, I think there's uh, you know there's there's not the you know the 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 actual tangible loathing uh, of Perrottet that there was for Morrison. Yeah. Um, uh, and and I think there is that sense that it will be you know that just times up the use yeah, by well, days flick past. Yeah. That, that's right, but there is, there is that difference. Yeah. So, um, um, uh, what, where, where does that leave the Liberal Party, Jack? I mean, we know it leaves them without any representation in government on the mainland. Where do they, where do they come back from that, Jack? Well, they, have to, they, they have to do what Labor Party, what both parties have had to do from time to time and, and just knuckle down and start again. The, the next challenge is some way off, and that's the Queensland election. They're on fixed terms now. Uh, that's the Queensland state election. still some way off. So it'll leave them uh, for almost two years without, um, uh, without uh, uh, any, uh, holding any position of government anywhere, any state or territory on the mainland of Australia. That will be devastating for their membership. It will be devastating for their fundraising. Uh, and I suspect they're in for a fairly rough ride. Um, uh, and uh, it also means the loss of the resources that being in government gives you. Oh, that's right. It, it, it's just it's a nightmare. Um, I, I do remember Joe Hockey uh, after the uh, 2013 election and uh, the first uh, the first sitting of uh, the House uh, with the new Abbott government in place and uh, Labor were being a bit uproarious uh, from uh, from the opposition benches and Joe Hockey said, and I don't often quote Joe Hockey, but this wasn't a bad one. He goes, this is the best day you'll have in opposition. Everything gets worse after that. Mm. And that's about right. So, so what does uh, what does uh, Chris Mintz have to do, Jack, to lock up those uh, to lock up that cross bench? Um, well, <laughs> who was it? Uh, someone was quoting um, uh, John Della Bosca gave some advice to to Bob Carr when he was facing a similar election where they weren't sure whether they would get the majority and they were going to be relying on independence, and uh, and Della rang Bob Carr a couple of days before the election. He says, "Ring every independent and wish them well." Mm-hmm. You think Means might do the same? He'd yeah. be well advised to do the same, wouldn't he? Every mm. single one of them, mm. uh, particularly those teals who aren't quite teals, yeah. uh, standing in uh, liberal seats, which uh, they might, uh, which uh, a number I'm predicting two minimum, and uh, it might be worse than that. Uh, meanwhile, Jack, around the country, the Jack Elliott uh, Award uh, might be being handed over to Bruce Lamb. And just to explain to listeners who may be on uh, listening to us for the first time, the Jack Elliott Award is someone who narrowly escapes a catastrophe only to uh, only to call in the solicitors and, and have another crack in the civil courts. And uh, as we all found out with Jack Elliott, he ended up broke and watching his undies and socks going around the laundromat in Carlton on Wednesday night. So, is Bruce Lemon headed down the same path, Jack? Well, he certainly seems to be. Um, uh, he's uh, applied to the court for an extension of time in which to 
issue the writs for a defamation action against various people. Because it must technically be lodged within a year, right? Yeah, that's right. Or, or, or given leave by the court to do yeah. so. So he's, in doing that, um, he's, put, he's put in play the circumstances in which he chose not to issue the defamation writ while the criminal um, uh, case was still going on. And that's allowed um, uh, his opponents in court to run out a series of texts that he sent mm, uh, at the them. time. Now, I'm not going to say that he was looking for the marching powder, but um, <laughs> he was saying he needed bags. Let's get it done. No one has to work tomorrow. Uh, and that his friend was paying, so let's get, so let's get lit. Um, let's get lit. Uh, you got any gear. Any, any gear and, and uh, Fishing cetera, gear, fishing and, equipment. Um, what, what would that mean, do you think, Jack? Well, I've spent a lot of time around um, our friends from the financial services and investment banking industries, and um, uh, and they seem to specialise in this this the sort gear. of thing. Uh, <laughs> like it, a bit of gear. It sounds it sounds like he might have a sniffle going on. <laughs> yes, indeed. So that's a, that's just the very early stages of potential embarrassment yeah. for yeah, him. It's only going to get worse from here, Bruce. I can tell you. You know. <laughs> All right. Uh, Look, we talked about this briefly um, uh, as much. We, we didn't have the detail, but the subs deal was more or less in place when we last went to record last week early. Uh, and since then, that deal has been announced. Australia will be um, an industrial military complex, uh, an overwhelming military force, of course, um, uh, and an invading nation should take note um, uh, that uh, we will we will fight back hard, provided they do it about twenty forty two. Other than that, please leave us alone. Um, but uh, it, the, the 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 subs deal um, uh, uh, met with the ire. Look, there was almost universal uh, support for it. I'm going to have a bit of a chat about why it's important. Um, shortly, but it was all sort of derailed when Paul Keating came along, had a uh, had a chat in the National Press Club, and um, uh, well, uh, it was a remote sort of chat, wasn't it? Um, and uh, and was very mean towards some journalists, Jack. Uh, yes, I did find that rather amusing. It was pretty funny, wasn't it? And some of them were scurrying around like you know, um, like uh, uh, year six boys, six boys and girls saying, you know, teacher, teacher. The, uh, the, you know, the, the Paul was mean to me. You know, <laughs> I just wanna, I just wanna talk to you about uh, uh, a friend of mine who watched it. Um, he said, um, uh, "Did you see? Uh, did you see Keating, Keating at the press club today? It was a truly glorious spray at everything and everyone, AUKUS." plus the cannon fodder reporters Sky, SMH, ABC and others sent to question the great man. He left them all bruised, bloody, dribbling messes. It was hilarious seeing smug Herald and Sky children barely out of uni, obviously thinking they were the chosen ones, and this old boomer would be easy pickings. He yeah. said, it was like the Somme, the best and brightest marching into a side of machine gun fire, <laughs> Keating only pausing occasionally to reload. Yeah, it did look a bit like that, didn't it? It did look a little bit like that. Anyway, journalist's offence uh, notwithstanding, is it a good move, Jack? Is this AUKUS subs deal comes with uh, uh, cruise missiles? We just 
bought a bunch of them as well uh, that will be loaded into the subs and elsewhere and <coughs> and marine uh, marine assets. Is it a good idea? Um, look, I think it's a, there are good arguments for and against, to be honest. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, you know, I, I, I think we need to have a useful deterrence uh, and we need to be able to project our power um, uh, for a, a fair way off the coast. Um, uh, whether this is the right solution, I think is arguable. I mean, Paul Keating made some good points. Um, and I, don't, I don't think there's a an absolute black and white, this is the best thing ever or this is the worst thing ever um, result. I think it's a, a question of judgment. I did notice also that Malcolm Turnbull uh, described it as uh, a, a potential disaster. I don't think that's not a direct quote, but something along those lines. That's, that's because it, do, it doesn't agree with what he decided. <laughs> fair, fair, fair point. But what... <laughs> Look, he is number two on the podcast list, Jack, so we should be respectful. The, uh, uh, the, the, the thing that uh, I, I think has been missed by a lot of the sort of armchair military strategists, of which I am one, by the way, um, is that the, the capacity of submarines is designed to keep your shipping lines open. Hmm. Um, it, it's not necessarily designed as a first strike weapon, although it certainly has that capability, but it's designed to, in the event of a conflict, uh, prevent a sort of naval blockade of the country that would basically starve us. Well, not starve us, but would uh, keep a lot of, uh, keep a lot of uh, our, our imports away from us. Mm. Um, uh, we can feed ourselves, of course, but... Um, um, that is one of the strategic elements of having a submarine. The, yeah, the, the other part of it is that, that there is a deterrence element to it. You know, that that, that if you um, uh, if you take action against a country, that that country has some capacity to hurt you back. Yeah, exactly right. And, and you and I were having a chat about this yesterday. We were looking at the Singapore um, uh, armed forces and their capacity. Now, Singapore is a non-aligned country. I believe that's right, Jack. Yeah, I think that's correct, yeah. It's, it's not in any formal alliances with anybody, I don't think. No, I think ASEAN, but I don't think that's a, that's that's not a treaty organisation, yeah, no. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and so it, um, uh, it, it, it buys its gear from the United States, from Israel, from Germany, from France. It has a very strong military capability, pound for pound, shall we say, hmm. relatively small population relative to Southeast Asia, and very small landmass, um, but it has taken care of its military capabilities. No one in their right minds would say that um, uh, Singapore was defendable against an overwhelming force, but what they've established is if you want to try it, you're going to end up with a pretty bloody nose. Yes. And so buying these things off the shelf check makes quite a lot of sense, doesn't it? Yes, I think it was the Indonesian President Habibi who wanted to, um, uh, he had a background as an aircraft engineer, he wanted to design uh, and build Indonesian passenger aircraft. Um, uh, And I always thought of that when we were getting the Collins class subs because the complexity of building a diesel electric submarine is much higher than building um, uh, a new 777. Yes. Um, and I could never work out why we were doing that, why we just didn't buy them from somebody else. 
you know, as they were. Um, uh, and I understand they want to do employment in South Australia. But Legal concern, yes. Yeah, yeah, these things are just too complex to build six of them. You've got to, you know, you've got to be, uh, if you're going to spend all that money on designing and developing them, you've got to, you know, uh, build 150 of them. You know, it's a bit like Boeing jets. And, of course, when they were built, Jack, it was, um, you know, uh, the stealth capacity was somewhat diminished. It was like someone was playing ACDC full blast as, as the submarine yeah. was coming they, in. They ended up being very successful, but they at were, great cost oh, oh, for a long yeah, time. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, but, of course... One, the one new- of the things that they were very, very good at, and that's another thing that submarines do, is that they enable you to sit off somebody's coast and listen to encrypted conversations, etc. Um, and, and I am told that in the um, when East Timor was uh, 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 in, in crisis, that um, a Collins class sub was sitting in Indonesia somewhere, and they were able to listen to everything. Well, they did have the place bugged as well, Jack. When um, we know that now, in uh, in Lexi Downer's time, uh, yeah. Look, of course, the nuclear subs fast, manoeuvrable, in out, in strike, out fast. Um, mm. That's what they're designed for. There's only a certain number of countries you can buy nuclear subs from. Jack, I wouldn't be buying the Russian ones because some of them end up on the bottom of the sea. Uh, it's the Americans. Uh, we could have, the, we could have bought nuclear subs French. from France, of course. We could fact, have, what, yes. we, what we were proposing to buy from France was a nuclear sub that was turned back into a diesel-electric sub. That's right. That's right. And I think and that, that, was, that was Malcolm's brilliant idea. Yeah, that was Malcolm's brilliant idea, but he's now since changed that brilliant idea to an even more brilliant yeah, one, okay. Jack, where where it would be us buying nuclear subs from the French essentially off the shelf. All mm. right. Uh, the RoboDebt RC has wound up and will be awaiting its report. Uh, Rick Morton. I, I, I don't know whether you've been following this, but I have. Um, it, it's a brilliant piece of journalism, just following him on Twitter with this. Um, yeah. I refuse to buy the Saturday paper. Um, it's the only time, though, I've ever um, followed court reporting that's interspersed with um, um, uh, descriptions of him hanging out his washing at his mum's place in uh, the middle of <laughs> Queensland. Um, and indeed, with telling you how much of the washing he's hung out, what proportion he's hung out with mathematical certainty. Uh, it's been very, very good. In fact, uh, the Royal Commissioner actually applauded um, social media users um, and said that basically the mainstream media had largely ignored the hearings uh, and there wasn't, it, to be fair, there wasn't much reporting on it, on it at all. So really those of us who either wanted to, we could watch the live um, uh, proceedings and I did on a number of occasions or we followed... Rick Morton, or there was another fellow called The Stranger on, on Twitter. Yeah. Uh, he was very good too. Um, and that led to the Royal Commission, uh, the Royal Commissioner get, receiving uh, or, or congratulating those people for doing just that. Yeah. What, because what, it's what quite serious, Commission? isn't it? I mean, this is a very serious matter. And, and uh, you know, not least of all the waste of money, but the human cost of all of this. And uh, really, the performance from the head of the department was just Believe it. Um, it. It gave us a rare. It's given us a rare opportunity to have a look under the bonnet, so to speak, of exactly how our bureaucracy is working. And the answer is not very well. Okay. Uh, yeah. So, so, what? What would your understanding? But what, what about these? What about the careers of these people? Surely they don't have any career prospects now in the public service anymore. Certainly on the Commonwealth dime. 
Um, well, I think they vary. Some people have um, have sort of come out of it okay, and some very badly. Well, none more so than the head of the department, who just her, her evidence was absolutely staggering. Yeah. Um, uh, anyway, uh, we'll we'll await the report. At least surprising, put it that way. Well, I mean, it it it, it was. Uh, Watching her give evidence was like watching someone who'd become completely detached from reality, and and, and any factual basis that was brought to it. I mean, you know, it was laborious, absolutely, just laborious watching it. Uh, <clears throat> and of course, uh, along the line there, Jack, there's a nice little quote here from Council Assisting Gregory at KC. Um, uh, uh, who who quizzed um, who quizzed uh, someone who actually made uh, who, who had the basically had the temerity to challenge the robo debt claim, Jack. Mm. And he said, "How do you feel about the idea of being a test case against the Commonwealth government?" And this fellow, the things the thing was a thing was a woman actually, wasn't it? Yeah, it was a woman. Mm. She says, I was very scared. It gave me a bit of anxiety. It wasn't an easy decision. But seeing the documents for myself, it seemed really obvious where the mistake happened. And I just felt like it was in the right place. I was in the right place to do it because it was just so obvious. And what was so obvious, Gregory asked? It was averaged over the whole financial year. Study usually starts at the beginning of the calendar year. So I'd been working full-time for the first six months of that year. Then I stopped working full-time to study. So it was really obvious that they'd averaged out over the whole year rather than the six months I was actually only claiming was study. Such an obvious thing. Ministers, bureaucrats, all just have been torn to shreds by this and <laughs> sort of dusted themselves off and walked out smiling. Well, I, I actually think that the bureaucracy has come off worse than the politicians in this. Oh, oh, there's no doubt about that. I mean, there was this, they deliberately kept legal advice from ministers, from the cabinet, hmm. that they had in their possession. And they did so because they were fearful that the head of the department might react badly. Hmm. And in the end, what was the cost of it? $2 billion, $2 billion in compensation, all the money that they uh, that they recovered returned. So it's a multi-billion dollar failure. And, and, and we can go even further as to say the anxiety and stress that it caused people did in some cases lead to suicides and, and just a great amount of fear more generally. Hmm. Terrible business, terrible business. Now, the voice jack, they tell me, Reading the Finn review yesterday, uh, that um, that Dutton and uh, Albanese are very close. But when I read uh, Dennis Shanahan, the Australian Today, I'm told that's not the case. Um, they're very close to agreeing on a procedure. And in fact, this morning I think they've announced that they've agreed on a procedure to put the thing up uh, in Parliament. But I don't think they're close on the, on the substance at this stage. Not close on the wording, yeah, that's right. So there seems to be, and and it would seem to me that there's a bit of a divergence between the government's position and the advisory body's um, position uh, on wording as well. So um, uh, you might want just want to explain that, and it gets to these very sort of complex legal matters, um, uh, uh, constitutional legal matters, just in to regard keep it to the role just, of the voice and whether it. 
oversee, well, not oversees, where, what role it plays in, in the decision-making of the executive. It, it, that's the key thing. Um, is it going to have a capacity to advise the parliament or capacity to advise the parliament and the executive? Um, and that's a sticking point. Um, and then I think the government's going to have three choices, basically. Um, they can dump the idea of constitutional recognition and just legislate for a voice to advise both the parliament and the executive, and that will get through, I would think. Well, we get um, through, but it'll be a major, major, major backstep. Yeah. Or they can push back against the working group, the Indigenous working group, and say the proposal that you've put up we don't think will succeed mm -hmm. uh, and we need to amend it. Um, that's choice number two. And choice number three, I think, is that they can say, well, we don't want to push back against the Indigenous working group, so we'll just go with whatever form of words you put up and we'll just have to hope it gets up. Right. Those are the three choices. And that's yeah. well put, actually. I, I, I suspect the government's position is the, the, the second one, um, but it will take a great deal of um, subtle negotiations to get to that point to get yeah. to a point where the advisory group and the government have um, have a defined role uh, of the voice that they can both live with. Yeah, something that's, something that's almost certainly winnable if they get that. If they, if they get the, the wording right and they get the proposal right, I think the thing will succeed. But if they don't and they mess about with, I don't think it will succeed at all. All right, long way to go there. Um, yep. But it would seem that we will see within the next fortnight, I would th that we will see the, the, act, the, 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 the question actually that will be put to the referendum. Linda, Linda Burney says within this two-week sitting period. All right, Jack. Uh, ugly scenes on uh, on Saturday outside the the uh, Victorian Parliament when a, a bunch of Nazis turned up and started ziggling from the steps of Parliament. Uh, we've all heard the stories. There was uh, an anti-trans uh, group had assembled there to protest. There was a responding uh, <clears throat> trans rights group. Uh, there was a bit of argy-bargy between the two. Uh, the police were keeping them at bay. I think they made, a number of arrests were made, uh, and then the Nazis turned up. Now, the big thing for us from a political... I, I would just say that I wouldn't classify it as an anti-trans group. I would classify it as a pro-women's spaces group. Um, well... <laughs> It's hard to know, Jack. I mean, Polly Parker's got a got a got a long history of being you know anti-trans. I mean, that that's that's clearly it. I mean, something some, and this this comes to this really does get to this point of why Nazis turned up mm. because she's got a she's got a bit of a history of using, shall we say, language that is. Pulling at the pulling at the shirt tails of Nazism, mm. um, so the political aspect is the thing I'm really interested in here. Maura Deeming was present there, I believe she spoke. She's a Liberal uh, MP. She's she's a member of the um, uh, member of the uh, Legislative Council in in Victoria. She represents the Western Metropolitan Region. Um, she was chosen after. Um, her predecessor, Bernie Finn, was expelled from the Liberal Party by Matthew, under Matthew Guy's leadership. 
Now it seems that John Pizzato, the leader of the Victorian uh, Liberal Party opposition, parliamentary party opposition, um, is uh, seeking to have her expelled uh, from the party as well. Pizzato, for, being, just, for being present at this demonstration on Sunday. For being present at the... Look, there are a couple of things here, Jack, I, I, I really need to inform you about. That the, the, the deeming after... One of the one of the one of the uh, organisers that's not deeming, we'd be very careful about this. Angie Jones, who's actually from the left, she said, "Women on Twitter. This is before the march. Women and Nazis uh, uh, are fighting for the rights of women. Are you?" That was her tweet. So that indicates to me that there was a knowledge amongst some of the organisers that this was going to happen. The second thing is deeming. Uh, Catherine Devis, uh, Polly Parker, and one other woman who I don't, I, I, I couldn't identify, were on a sort of Facebook Live after the protest, sipping champagne and saying that it wasn't Nazis, it was the Antifa or possibly police that had, uh, had, that had intervened in this rally. Later that night, Deeming issued a statement saying that uh, she was unaware of these people turning up and she felt very frightened and intimidated. The point I would make, Jack, is that none of them left. I mean, either you get the Nazis to leave or you leave. I think that's the way you've got to handle that sort of thing. But none of them did. So do you think she should be expelled from the party? Well, I think she will be expelled from the party now. <clears throat> I actually don't think she will, I say. Uh, well, Ferg John Ferguson in the Australian yesterday, um, uh, in the, uh, the very strong indication that uh, Pizzotta has the numbers to, yeah. to remove her now. Um, if, if he if he doesn't, I think there are serious problems for Pizzotto and there are very serious problems for the Liberal Party going forward. Yeah. One, one thing that Ferguson, just before you go on, one, one thing that Ferg, that Ferg did say, which I thought was absolutely right, is that when you become a parliamentarian, as deeming has been now for less than six months. You don't really look. You know, you, you, she's made two speeches, two profoundly anti-abortion speeches, including her first speech to the to the to the uh, lower uh, upper house. You don't rush at these things like a bull at a gate. You know, otherwise you are going to come a cropper. And, and I think that's kind of what's happened. What's happened here? If Ferg says she's got that, Pizzotto's got the numbers. Then I'd be pretty. I'd be pretty comfortable that he's right. Um, he may well have the numbers. Um, I'm just not sure what she's getting expelled for. Okay, well, let's start with the basic one, what I just went mentioned before. Nazis turn up. Nazis are in, in, uh, Nazis are basically um, um, uh, interacting with this protest group, including with Maura Deeming. Then there's the sinkhole salutes and so forth. As I said. You either ask them to leave, and if they won't leave, you leave. I think that's the way you've got to handle Nazi presence at a rally. Yeah, well, I think that's a new test um, uh, uh, for, for mine. Um, well, how does it look if, 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 you, if you stay there, if you stay there communicating with them? Well, if she was being expelled for being pro-Nazi, I could sort of see it, but I just don't see the evidence for that at the moment. Anyway, we'll, we'll see how it pans out. Oh, well, we will see it. We will see how it pans out. It's a real test for the Liberal Party. Look, this is this is this is the, the, the my final word on this. 
what this really does expose is just this the the the, the paucity of any sort of intellectual um, or ideological sense within the Victorian Liberal Party at the moment that this is par a party populated by extremists who are step by step becoming unelectable with people like Pizzato, the moderates uh, and being drawn into uh, being drawn into the minority within their own parliamentary party um, <coughs> you know I mean how would most Victorians feel about this and, and most Victorians are going to feel about this as what the hell is a Victorian Liberal Party up to now? I think you've got to go more than just thinking about what the most Victorians will think about it and get this right. I would have thought John Pesuto would have the wit to say that he's opposed to Nazis and all that they stand for, but and he might not agree with... Well, who is? Pro I mean, like, I think but, that's but he, the point, just let, me, let me finish. He might not agree with the pro-women spaces view... But that's a view that's perfectly entitled to be made. It is perfectly entitled to be made, but and that's I, I what he didn't any, say. That's any, what he should have any said. Any political leader who comes out and says I am opposed to Nazis is is, is really stating what should be what should be patently obvious. No, sometimes you've got to say these things out loud. No, I, I think enough has been said, Jack, to, to, for you to come out and say, "Look, we don't like Nazis." I mean. Uh, the, the optics well, of this are absolutely terrible. They're terrible <laughs> for Devis. They're terrible for Deeming. Um, Polly Parker has got a history that we, you, you should have a look at a, a Glasgow rally where she talked about the big lie, which was uh, a, a, a phrase much used by, the, uh, used by the Nazis in regard to the Holocaust. Uh, you know, she's been... You know, she denies it. Everyone denies it. I mean, these guys don't get around in swastikas and, and brown shirts anymore. But the simple fact of the matter is they turned up and all and, and the members, including the organisers of that rally, who are perfectly, as you say, perfectly entitled to be expressing their opinions, stayed exactly where they were with yeah, the Nazis. Okay. Well, I, I get your point. Um, um, I just don't think she should be expelled unless, the, unless there's some evidence linking her to the Nazis. Beyond, right. being in the, beyond being in the same geographic location. Now, Jack, quick question, quick trivia question. She'll be in the uh, – let's presume she's expelled. Let's just get, get ahead of that and just say that it happens. But she will be in the upper house for four years or three and a half more years. Is that right? I think that's correct, yeah. New South Wales, it's eight years. Jesus Christ. Mm. And you only need 4% of the vote, Jack. Why, why don't we have a crack? You don't have to do anything. You're in Remember the upper house? Not as if you have to go to school fates or do anything like that. You know, a uh, political pal of mine uh, and I, she and I used to joke about the ideal job for a politician would be in, to be in the Tasmanian upper house. Oh, yeah. That's yeah, ridiculous. There's only about 12 of them, too. There's yeah, barely a cricket team. <laughs> because Tasmania, of course, gets five House of Rep seats because that's the that's the minimum number a state can get. That's in the, in the federal sphere. Yeah. Um, it gets, what, the 12 senators? 12. Uh, yeah. Um, uh, and um, uh, plus all of the local politicians, the local members, they have, uh, what do they call it, the... Um, uh, uh, a good friend of I, a good friend of ours, used to call it the hair lip system um, uh, <laughs> to determine their local state MPs. <laughs> yeah, um, that's very rude. 
Um, uh, and, uh, and, and so by the time that your constituent wants to bother a politician, they've got about 50 people to get to before they bother someone in the state <laughs> upper house. Well, there's um, also uh, the small matter of per capita representation. Yeah, and, and, and it's about as it's about as big as a Geelong and a half, I think, um, uh, Tasmania, isn't you, it, the population? You, you, you literally... <laughs> you basically got one person. Um, uh, uh, well, sorry, so about three people electing one person. Um, yeah, yeah uh, very fair. So you can be a sense. politician without having to deal with pesky constituents wanting to wanting you to fix the road or anything like that. Well, what about local government, Tasmania? Jack, still got councils here too. You know. Anyway, the banks. Where are we now with the banks? Is it time? Is it time to go down to the bank and demand your cash and refuse the office furniture? Well, I don't think we really know how bad the situation is, and the reason I say that is, is that nobody from the outside can tell just how bad the the banks' positions on these various problems are, and the problem is what the two thousand and eight global financial crisis is tells us is that even within the banks, they don't know necessarily how bad their position is. Okay. So what's the driving force here, Jack? I mean, the Credit, credit Suisse, can't, we can, we can uh, not apply this, uh, the, uh, the policies of Trump to Credit Suisse, but uh, SVP, we might be able to. There was one of the, uh, uh, one of the criticisms last, last year was that the prudential requirements were dropped on some of the small banks, on the, on some banks with with uh, with savings holdings under, I think fifty billion was it fifty billion? Yeah. Uh, uh, and uh, but that seems to be a bit of a red herring, doesn't uh, it? It's nothing to do with it at all. Um, what's what's knocked what's knocked over at the SVB Bank was that they had invested in triple um, A gilt uh, blue ribbon uh, long term bonds. Um, which have dropped in present value. If you try and cash them in today, their values drop considerably because the inflation rate's so high. Yeah, that seems to be the problem. So this is one of the problems of sustained high inflation, that your banks will come under a bit of pressure. It must be said that Australian banks' prudential requirements, uh, you know, basically of a, of a sort of gold standard uh, and there is nothing really to be worried about in, in terms of... It, it's where you have a, an essentially deregulated environment like the United States where you have big, small, even, you know, town-sized banks uh, that, that you can have real problems. Yeah. Um, the uh, Well, that's, that's right. Um, no one really knows how many more banks are at risk, as I say, because um, I suspect that they don't either. Um, if you'd watch the, the farewell press conference for the chairman of Credit, Credit Suisse, you might have come to conclu- the conclusion that the reason they got into trouble was, was pretty badly run. Um, uh, that it was, it seems a, to be the a, case with Credit Suisse, doesn't it? Um, yeah. that, that they sold a multi-bit, well, they've basically been sold for an absolute fire sale price. Place um, uh, was worth uh, uh, about eighty billion not so long back, and they sold it for four. And they had to move quickly because I think there were 10, 10 billion worth of deposits were taken out on the last day. Ouch! So that was um, that was going to be an absolute disaster. Now, Jack, let me just spring this on you. Um, we didn't. Uh, I should have mentioned this to you before, but we have seen some um, some biological information around the. Um, 
source of the SARS-CoV-2 virus, Jack, pointing to zoonotic transmission that will that has involved um, uh, an animal I didn't even know existed until very very recently called a raccoon dog, which is a, a sort of raccoon-faced fox, um, and uh, and I read. Uh, in Scientific American, there's fairly comprehensive evidence. Uh, we might not say that uh, it was overwhelming, um, but um, according to the scientist that was interviewed, uh, who's a, a, a biologist at the University of uh, California, he said the only way the lab link theory, lab leak theory, works now is if a person went from that. Uh, that lab, the uh, Institute of uh, Virology in Wuhan, to the Huanan uh, market without infecting anybody and then infecting two raccoon dogs and then coming back to the Institute, uh, the, the, the Wuhan Institute of Virology without infecting anybody. Yeah, well, I'm not going to get into the arguments about, about the lab leaks or not. I live up here. All right, fair enough. It just seems like it was kind of always what we were told. But anyway, it, one thing I guarantee you is it will always be contested. So It will always be contested. Yeah, probably will be, yeah. Um, on to energy now, Jack. Uh, bans on washing machines, gas stoves and what? What's going on there? There's no bans, are there? There's just... Uh, uh, they're, no, they're, they're, making... just, just, they're just raising the regulatory requirements of them to rule out about 90-something percent of the existing ones. They're not banned, so that's not a ban, is it? It's just uh, it's an effective efficiency ban. standards to, uh, to, um, to white goods. Um, we've had it for a very long time here, Jack. You'd have, uh, yeah, I, don't know, I don't know about Hong Kong, but, of course, uh, virtually every white good in the house uh, uh, has got an efficiency sticker on it. Yeah, and what they're talking about is raising those requirements to rule out um, 90 plus percent of the current market, the current products. All right. Um, now, of course, the other thing I am going to spring on you a little bit is that the IPCC report was released yesterday because we're talking a little bit about energy now, Jack. Uh, and it was, and I guess we all get a bit used to this, sort of a bit apocryphal. It is their last report, I think, until 2035, uh, or it might be 2030. Did you say apoc apocryphal or apocalyptic? What did I say? Apocryphal. apocryphal. I could... uh, uh, no, sorry, yes, I meant to say apocalyptic. We are sort of getting a bit used to the apocalyptic messaging. Um, but, of course, it is 700 climate scientists, Jack, and uh, neither you nor I are one of those. Uh, and there is, I think, one of the one of the sort of take home things was that half the world's population now, Jack, do not have access to a reliable water supply, to a fresh water it's, supply. Do not have access to a reliable uh, water supply. Yeah. Um, so when we talk about, and you have before, about electricity going into black and brown. Uh, people in Asia and Africa and so forth. I mean, the, the, the first thing to note here is that the, the basically reliable water supply is the first thing um, that uh, the climate change is causing in those areas, in Africa and Asia. Yeah, That's um, where it's going to come. The, the best comment I saw on the IPC report this morning was on Twitter, and it goes like this. What I really love about apocalyptic climate um, uh, warnings is... That I get older and the warnings stay the same. 
Well, where have they got it wrong? I mean, in their previous reports, where have they got it wrong? Well, I don't know whether they got it right, right or wrong. What I'm what I'm saying is that the current media commentary on climate science is wrong. Certainly in Australia, the idea that um, gas is a strand, that, that, that coal and gas are stranded assets is complete nonsense. We're going to be using coal and gas well beyond 2050. The world is. <coughs> okay, so you've got some figures there from our world in data. Just go through those for us, please, mate. Um, um, well, what it shows is that there's no energy transition. What the renewables are doing is adding to a growing energy market. And the so reason global, energy global consumption of energy is increasing. Is, is increasing. And it's increasing far faster than the renewable input to that. Right. So what's happening is the demand for energy is going up. And the reason it's going up is that people in the third world want the benefits that we've had from cheap, reliable, dispatchable energy. And, and the only way we can prevent the energy demand around the world from going up is to say to poor bracken, brown and yellow people, you can't have what we got. Well, I don't know that those are the only choices. I mean, we are starting to see a, a, a big uh, renewables come in big, in, big, uh, in big ways throughout the world. So really what we're looking at is part of a shift, aren't we? Aren't we looking at a, a part of a shift from the energy mix? Because I guarantee you those figures, if you looked at them 20 years ago, renewables wouldn't, uh, wouldn't be a dot in them. There hasn't been, there's been a diminishment of use of things like coal in the United States and Australia and places like that, but not worldwide, not at all. China is building, is approving the building. Um, last year, in 2022, China approved the building of basically one power coal-fired power station per week. All right, so if the IPCC's right, mate, we're in a bit of strife, aren't we? We may well, if they're right, we may well be. But the idea that we're going to stop, people are going to stop using coal because the IPCC says to is just wrong. They're not going to. How are we going to fix it? How are we going to fix it, though? Surely there's a role for technology, Jack. Surely there's a role for technology that's. that's well, I mean, look, I understand once you build coal fired power plants, you're not going to not, you're not going to shut them down a week later or, or a month or a year later. Um, but surely there's got to be a role for technology here. Well, the, the, if there is a technological solution to this, it hasn't been found. Right. And I'm looking at uh, one of your uh, graphs here, Jack, that renewables, renewables certainly renewables are growing um, uh, and quite significantly. What is that? Renewables up there and then hydroelectricity there. Then we've got coal. Oh, what's that one? Then? Oh, that's natural gas and oil. Well, oil production's... Well, I'd say the world price, world price of oil has gone down, not that that's particularly relevant. And so you're saying in emerging economies, China, India, etc. Plus all of Africa. Plus all of Africa, plus most of Asia, hmm. uh, that uh, what we might call fossil fuel, fossil fuels are being burnt to, to create electricity. Yeah, exactly right. Not just to create electricity, to provide not energy sure. generally. Yeah, to provide energy. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, uh, so that's where that's where 
if the IPCC reports and other climate scientists around the world are to be believed, this is where the problems lie. And 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 surely you can't just walk blindly towards the cliff here, can you? Well, then you're going to have to explain to the poor black and brown and yellow people um, why they're going to, have to continue living in poverty. Well, wouldn't there be an other solution, Jack, and say, well, look, look, here we here we go. Here is renewable technology here. And the good thing about it is, once it's built, we don't have to shovel. We don't have to shovel uh, uh, material into it to, to to make to keep your lights on. To keep um, your lights on. Because because it can't be built quickly enough and reliably enough to, to fulfil what's required. The oh, Chinese right, don't yeah. believe it. The Indians don't believe it. The Indonesians don't believe it. All right. Well, that's pretty grim stuff, Jack. Um, <clears throat> Meanwhile, uh, nuclear is to be classified as environmentally sustainable in the UK, Jack. That's right, yes. Well, <laughs> would you like me to remind... I'll just remind our listeners of um, uh, the UK's latest foray into uh, throwing nuclear, uh, broadening uh, the contribution of nuclear energy into their grid. Um, it was <coughs> a decision made in 2006. I think they first turned the soil on it in around about 2011. And here we are in 2023. This is in Somerset, by the way, and it's still not up and running. It, it is slow. But once and you get it up and running, they'll last forever. 12 years, budget blowout, it costs $60 billion. Uh, 60 billion uh, US dollars to build, and it's built by the French. That's the other thing, um, built by the French national company. Um, 60 billion dollars is a lot of built, a lot of money to, to provide. What I think it's 13 percent, 13 percent to the electricity grid in the UK. Yeah, they they're doing that to 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 lessen their reliance on coal and gas. Well, meanwhile the French are reducing theirs from 70 to 50. Hmm. In nuclear energy, I think we've discussed this. I think there's a there's certainly a role for uh, modular small reactors to provide electricity. In well, we, we the, the ones that are being put around at the moment. Uh, there, there's one in China which you probably wouldn't bother with too much. Uh, there's one that's been designed to be built in the United States. The, the, the capacity of them in kilowatts is they light up about 40,000 homes or you could use them for, for heavy industry. They are not, they're not water intensive. That's one of the things that I think is a real benefit uh, for them because in, if you're looking at nuclear power in Australia, any, any large-scale reactor, just you, you, you couldn't put it on the eastern seaboard where it needs to go or if you're going to put it on the river systems, well, you'd, you'd have to understand that the river systems in Australia are pretty unreliable. Because no, put one on North Head, mate. Well, well yeah, put one in, uh, put one in Warringah, Jack. Yeah. Mm. Um, look, not opposed to it, but the three things about any sort of energy policy is it's got to be cheap, it's got to be reliable, and it's got to be you know low carbon emitting. I think those are the three requirements, and I'm not sure that nuclear energy ticks the first two boxes. Yeah, well, I think a, a large part of the world don't agree with the third one of those. 
low carbon emitting. The Chinese certainly don't, um, and the Indians don't, the Indonesians are all, they're all building coal-fired power stations. Yeah, okay. All right, well, um, let's move on to Russia and the Ukraine, Jack. And I'm going to ask you a question. Is Russia now a vassal state of China? Um, it's a little bit hard to know that for sure because the there's a, a lack of transparency in their relationship. And yes, I think that's reasonable to say. I mean, cer- certainly um, uh, the Chinese are, um, uh, have... I guess a fair bit of influence to just be kind about this um, uh, on the eastern Russia. You know, um, they, a lot of the agricultural land there is now being used by Chinese for Chinese production. Well, Vlad, Vladivostok's Chinese, yeah. Russians mm. pinched it. Um, there was a story the other day in the paper that um, uh, some of the Chinese are promoting that its name before it became Vladivostok. It used to have a Chinese name. Yes, indeed. Well, it was. Um, Part of China and Russia, uh, uh, which I've forgotten at the moment. But yes, so, <laughs> yeah, no, that doesn't who, who knows how that will pan out? Uh, I guess that in part that depends upon how Russia is going. Uh, yes, uh, well, Russia. We looked at their GDP figures uh, uh, late last year, Jack, and and they are kind of in depression territory. I mean, sustained negative growth around seven or eight percent uh, per annum. They are in all sorts of trouble, and they need <laughs> they need uh, they need powerful allies, and they c- certainly seem to have found one in China. Always have for some for for, for, for obvious reasons, but it, it, the nature of that relationship, even if we're going back to the Cold War days, is very 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 much changed. But Russia is now the inferior party. We have a troubled history together. I think it's fair to say. Yes, hasn't always been a lot of uh, goodwill, um, but this, and, and I understand. You know, we need to be cautious about this. But but they're, they're, it's clear that both countries have a profound anti-US stance, and that this is their way of um, uh, of presenting presenting uh, an anti-US face to the world. Yeah, that might be a fair assessment. Alright. Um, uh, <coughs> so where are we going? Look, where are we going in the Ukraine conflict, Jack? And it, it has been bogged down. We are now uh, in the early spring in Ukraine, uh, a time when there's a lot of uh, permafrost melting or frost melting, uh, grounds getting softer, which is not great for heavy, uh, heavy machinery, heavy um, heavy military equipment um, do you think that there'll be you know, the arrival of the, and I've been talking about this for a little while the, the arrival of the Abrams tanks I, I, I suggest will be a game changer um, and, uh, and, and where um, the Ukrainian troops have been bogged down in places like Bakhmat um, uh, uh, they could quite easily be resolved. Abrams tanks, longer firing range, faster, more manoeuvrable, um, <coughs> could bring some really big problems uh, for the Russians there. Is it worthwhile uh, looking at even the survey? Here we go. Uh, the, the, the Times ran one, said the, Uc- uh, the, the various options available. Ukraine must regain all of its territory, even if that means a longer war or more. 
Ukraine is being killed. Uh, Britain says 44%, Italy 26 Germany 33 uh, France 35 Romania 22 um, percent in favour of those, uh, in favour of that eventuality. So if we're looking at that, we want fairly swift breakthroughs. Um, uh, uh, and at the same time, we've seen the Russian, uh, the Wagner Group, Jack, the Wagner Group, uh, having all sorts of problems there um, with their um, uh, with uh, with making demands and being highly critical of the Russian uh, military machine. Yeah, that mightn't be. Um, uh, I might be getting onto AMP and having them cancel um, about <laughs> the, the the Wagner Group uh, heads uh, life insurance there because it. Uh, oh, he's a piece it, of work, Jack. He could do. Yeah, I don't think anyone would be too upset if someone yeah, uh, popped a couple he, of. Uh, he might find, himself having, might find himself having a mysterious fall. Yeah, it just seems that the, the sort of limits of the Kremlin's power is is in in that um, uh, East Ukrainian uh, battlefront. There, um, I think uh, I think we basically need to sit back just for a, uh, for a few months. We need to get into the European summer uh, and uh, and see what the, the sorts of kit that NATO is providing the Germans and the Americans in particular. Um, I noticed too the Poles are providing. Um, uh, uh, a number of, I think, only two, um, but um, but uh, air, uh, airstrike ca- capacity um, through uh, through fighter jets, um, and is that something the Americans won't really countenance? Although they're sort of dabbling with it at the moment, but isn't that something else they should be doing, or is there fear of escalation? Don't know. Um, I, I must say that um, I, I'm not as optimistic as a lot of the. Um, uh, the Ukrainian barracks are in uh, in the West. Well, what about the uh, what about the uh, well? There is now a warrant for the arrest of, of Vladimir Putin, Jack. Now, clearly, that's a symbolic uh, symbolic sort of effort. Um, I, I keep going coming back to the same same issue. If you invade a country, if you bomb its cities, a neighbouring country, by the way, if you bomb its cities, if you kill its civilians, there's got to be a price to pay for that. And the price isn't going to be, oh, we'll give you some some of Ukraine's land and we'll forget about the war crimes. I don't know how it's going to be, quite honest, but I'm not as optimistic as a lot of people in the West seem to be. Well, Donald Trump reckons he'll have it knocked over in 24 hours, Jack. <laughs> He's elected president. How do you reckon he'd do that, by the way? We'll get on to no, Trump in a minute. No but, idea. But, but, but how do you reckon he'd do that? And and I saw some bloke interviewed, you know, Trump uh, had the you know, American flag and eagles and all sorts of stuff all over him. And and, uh, he, and he was asked, well, how do you think that would happen? How do you think you would get rid of uh, how you'd be able to resolve this conflict in 24 hours? And, and the guy said, well, uh, uh, the guy was interviewed said, so land troops, he goes, um, no, so American land troops in the Ukraine. He goes, no, but the threat of it, the threat of it would be enough. The threat of it would be enough for, for the Russians to go, oh, we'd better get running home. Um, yeah, well, no, I, I, keep re- I keep reading the media and I, and I uh, you know, uh, read stuff that says that, look, 
you know, Russia's on the retreat or they're, they're, they're definitely going to lose. I don't see the evidence for that yet. They may, that may well end up happening, but I just don't have an optimistic view about it, as optimistic a view about it as a lot of the media commentators seem to be. I reckon just let the Poles go, mate. The Poles, the Poles just want to go to Moscow. They're, they're mm. raring to go. Yep. Let, let them off the leash, I say. Former uh, President Donald Trump. Well, he, he, I mean, he he's the only one who's predicted his arrest. He's the only one who's predicted he'll be indicted. And here we are on Wednesday uh, afternoon. Um, and uh, really the time limit for the Tuesday arrest, which would be Wednesday our time, has pretty much passed us, Jack. Um, but he reckons he will be indicted. Yeah, so, so he keeps saying. That's what I'm wondering. Is it real? I mean, there, there seems to be no indication he may well be indicted at some point, but Tuesday? I mean, he gave a specific day for his arrest. Um, and, and it seems to me that he's sort of clawing for a bit of support. Surely not. It could well be. Do you want to explain the indictment, what it might look to be, what it might be about, Jack? Oh, I think it's going to be about um, n- not the substance of him paying off some porn star or having some porn star paid off, but the manner in which it was done. So it's an, it's an argument about um, uh, misuse of um, financial campaign finances, perhaps. Um, um, it looks a pretty weak case, I've got to say. Um, well, on my understanding of that, because it's basically two misdemeanors make a felony, right? And yeah. and uh, and, and the the likely no, not likely the maximum penalty for something like this would not be a jail term. No. So it doesn't look like he's going to be jailed. He's got <laughs> may not even be indicted. It's only he's the only one saying he's going to be. Then we've got the, uh, the, the. I don't think he will be. By the way. Well, I'm just. I'm just going to say. Just let me go through. So the Australian ran an editorial yesterday that he's got basically four matters. There's the Georgia matter. There's the January sixth stuff. Uh, there's the. Well, I'll tell you what. There's another little sneaky thing that someone raised uh, to me that if he is indicted and arrested, he will be fingerprinted and he will be cheek swabbed, Jack. And there's uh, another little possible scenario there for a woman who has been claiming that he raped her uh, and a possible release of DNA there, which is all very intriguing. But, look, there's four potential matters, and uh, and it may well be that he's in, under indictment for all four within the next six months. My point is none of those things will prohibit him from running for president. If he's so, indicted on four matters, that will boost his chances of getting the nomination in the Well, presidency. that's the Elon Musk thing. but And this is what I was getting to. That's, that's Elon Musk. I mean, you know, if Elon Musk says it, <laughs> it's probably not going to happen, um, given his record of late. But that's what I'm saying. So so with these sorts of things, maybe there's two, maybe there's three, maybe there's four, maybe there's just one. But if he's entitled, it's not going to prevent him from running for president. So in this rather long-winded way, my question is, will it enhance his prospects or will it uh, will it reduce them? It'll enhance them, in my view. Okay, so let me ask you why that would be. 
because um, uh, at least amongst um, uh, about 50% of the population, they will see that he's being treated differently to other politicians. Yeah, how do we get to 50% on that, mate? Uh, I, I think about half the country will think, will think that. Yeah. Okay. So the first thing I'd say about uh, the first thing I'd say about now that I've asked you the question, obviously this is not going to do have anything to do with voter recognition. I mean, everyone knows who Donald Trump is. No. So uh, the the normal the normal rules of of American politics have pretty much gone out the window <laughs> before Trump's time. But but. Normally, you would say if you've been charged with a criminal offence, it's not going to augur all that well for you uh, come election day or come primary day. And I still think that that rule will follow. And that's because I think Republicans can, can, can jump up and down about Trump and support him or not, and Democrats can do the same. But in the middle, and a larger chunk of the third, so let's say 35% of the vote, are independent voters who are going to look at this guy and go, we don't want any more of this. So I, I think, think it's they an don't, actual I think negative. I think they don't want any more of Trump, but they won't like, still they won't like seeing him being charged with offences. They will see that he's been treated differently to other politicians. Well, I think you'd find if you, if you polled Americans, more than 50% think he's a crook anyway. That they may well think that, but they still won't want him treated differently to other politicians. <laughs> How would they see him being treated differently? This is called comeuppance. This is called. This is called. It's about time. I mean, I well, went they're, through they're, a whole lot of stuff. I went through a whole lot of stuff on social media about all of this, and I tried as best I could to separate the Democrats from the Republicans. And generally speaking, when you've got any sort of um, apolitical opinion, it was. It's about time this guy got his got his collar felt. Yeah, uh, absent him being charged, I don't think he'll be the candidate. Yeah, it's actually put a bit of bit of pressure on DeSantis to do something about it or to well, say something he, he, about he, it. He has he has this morning. He has he's yeah, done, yeah. done an interview with uh, Piers Morgan, which is sort of a, a campaign launch, I think. Yeah, I, I mean. So, so where does that okay? Let, let, let's get, let's go further with that and speculate. And say, okay, so DeSantis wins, DeSantis wins the primary, and at some point along the line, Donald Trump gets nailed. You know, falls off the branch. What happens to Donald Trump? Oh, I don't know. He probably wanders off and plays golf. But he does it now. <laughs> he does yeah, it I, now. I don't think he will be a third party candidate. I, I don't think he will do that. Okay, I don't think that's likely either. We've been saying for some time he won't want to. He won't want to. He won't want to lose. No, it's 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 not it's not going to be good for his mental health. I think we can say that. Um, but we have been saying for some time that uh, and you and I sort of agree that we, that we doubt that it'll be Biden v Trump again. But then there's a whole mass of whole mass of polling that indicates that it will be. So yeah. You know, it's it's sort of back in play. In, interestingly, the uh, the Trump support in Iowa, which is the first of the uh, Republican primary caucuses, uh, Republican primary votes, um, the Trump support has dropped twenty points in the last month or so. Is that right? Yeah. And look, 
hate to say, hate to say, but I think, you know, this is one of those things. You can't be charged with criminal offences and expect it to be a boost for your political fortunes. That's my view. Anyway, Jack, in last week's episode, you described South Africa as a gangster. Was it a gangster state? Becoming a gangster state without wanting to misquote you? veering in that direction, put it that way. Veering in that direction, and there's a bit bit of evidence that's come our way that might suggest that uh, you're right. Yeah, there was a chap there who's a, um, oh, look, he's a, a, um, an accountant, really, um, uh, but he was investigating government corruption scandals and he and his son were shot dead um, uh, in Pretoria. Um, well, that's, to be fair, another day in South Africa. But what's, what's, what's the particular... Uh, what's uh, he, was, he, he was investigating um, a government corruption that goes to the highest levels of the government um, uh, in some scandals there. So this is the company Bosasa. Uh, mm. oh, he was a liquidator. That's a, that's a company. But he, he, he worked as a liquidator for firms linked to the wealthy Gupta brothers who deny bribery accusations. Police will see if there is a link. Mr Murray was shot by unknown gunmen. Um the land, uh, one of those companies was Basasa, a government contractor specialising in prison services. Oh, don't you just love it when prisons get privatised, Jack? That's always a good idea. The landmark Zondo Commission into Corruption concluded the company extensively bribed politicians and government officials to get government contracts during the nine-year presidency of Jacob Zuma. Who, uh, if, if if he isn't a crook, Jack, he'd, uh, he'd he'd do a pretty good impersonation of one. Oh, you're just you're just going going off on him because he couldn't find a few million dollars tucked behind his cash cushion. But there was quite a little amount. It wasn't quite as much as that. Uh, Mister Zuma, of course, refused to cooperate. We've talked about problems in South Africa. Major uh, major problems around energy, routine brownouts in the big cities. It just looks like an absolute basket case developing, Jack. And there's going to be a, a, a nationwide uh, marches and strikes about the power crisis. Right. And um, uh, the president and um, and the police commissioner are, are, are characterising those protests as an attempt to overthrow the government. Overthrow the government. This is not a shutdown, but it's anarchy. Uh, said yeah. the KwaZulu Natal Police Commissioner, Lieutenant General. Now, well, I won't even try and pronounce his, uh, his uh, first name, but Makwanasi um, is his surname. Uh, and the opposition party, just for those uh, curious, is called the Economic Free Freedom Fighters. Um, uh, and uh, basically, South Africa is, as we know, a sort of one-party state. With the Ash- the which is, which is which is the source of a lot of their problems. The fact that it's become a one-party That's state. That's it. That's it. It just doesn't work, does it? And uh, yeah. it just means that the, the people in government just get lazy, uh, and uh, and are prone to corruption uh, mm. because there's no electoral threat. No, and, that's correct. Uh, and while you've got a one-party state, in you're not going to have any sort of a reasonable examination of corruption. Um, yeah. Meanwhile, in Nigeria, Jack, uh, the last we reported on it was they'd gone to the election and it was very, very unclear. So where are we now as to uh, the, uh, what's the, the happened The ruling with the party election? candidate seems to have won and they're gone to the next step, which is regional elections. So they're taking place. So a bit to play out left yet, yet there, but it looks like the ruling party is going to continue in power. Going to continue in power. Well, it's... Again, you know, you've got a, a, a real problem there too because there are 
massive, massive problems uh, going in on, on well, across Africa. Um, but uh, Nigeria is uh, perhaps one of the most benighted uh, uh, countries in, in the continent. Now, Jack, how, how do you watch your footy? I was just going to ask you, do you get nervous watching Carlton? Oh, I, I get worse as I get older. I, I, I actually, <laughs> I will watch. I know a couple of people who, who, who are too nervous to actually watch a game live, but I will watch. I've been consigned to the, uh, you know, the bedroom upstairs. I'm not allowed to watch it on the main television downstairs because I get a bit noisy. So I'm consigned to the bedroom where I literally sit on the edge of the bed and watch the game and um, and sort of sweat it out, sweat it out uh, uh, like that. It's 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 it, I've got to say it's a little bit pathetic. Yeah, I got a, I got a pal, Big John. His name is an Aussie fellow. He's living here in Hong Kong. Great Geelong man. He's safely back in Ballarat these days. Um, but whenever it got close during those years, 2007, 2009, 2011, whenever it was close in the last quarter, he'd leave the pub and go out and stand at the front with the smokers because he couldn't bear to watch it. <laughs> couldn't bear to uh, watch it. <laughs> and, and we'd send him a text and say, it's safe to come back in now. So um, uh, last year, grand final day, we were WhatsApping each other because it's the swans and, and the cats and uh, wishing each other good luck for a good afternoon, etc., etc. And about halfway through the third quarter, I, uh, I sent him a text. I said, you can come inside now. It's all over a quarter time, <laughs> to be honest. Yeah. And, uh, but even halfway through the third quarter, he said to me, no, it's too close. <laughs> too, 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 too close. And another Geelong barrier. And Geelong have been probably the uh, most successful side, perhaps with Hawthorne over the last 20 years. Um uh, and he he'll go for long walks. He'll go for a, he'll go he won't he won't watch it live. Um, and uh, and another mate of mine, uh, a good mate of mine, Brian. Well, he'll put the jumper on. He'll put the jumper on. He'll put the is, Richmond this is, jumper. This is your Richmond mate. Yeah, yeah. He put the he put the just watching in the lounge. He's enough going to the footy. Pop, pops the jumper on. And at half time, if they um, if they <laughs> if they're looking to be in any trouble, they'll go and put the shorts and the socks on. Yeah, uh, and he's, he's fifty. Well, he'd be fifty, fifty-eight. Should know better. Yeah, I can remember back to nineteen eighty, the nineteen eighty-four grand final. We were in the in the outer um, watching Essendon, um, and after the debacle of the previous year, um, and uh, a couple of the guys had to go outside, got to go out the back for a smoke because they couldn't bear to watch until Essendon got the run on. You know, uh, it happens. It does happen. It's a bit sad, really. Um, uh, Carlton play the Cats this week. Uh, Geelong well beaten by Collingwood. There is that fabulous story, though, of um, I think when David Parkin was coach about, you know, I mean, how, you know, I think I might have said to you, you need to have the, the earphones in listening to the music like the players do before the game. And uh, it's that fabulous old story of David Parkin walking in. I think it must have been before the 81 or 82 grand finals. And he found um, all of his players were lying on their backs on, the, right. on the floor. Um, uh, what is his name? Rudy Webster, that West Indian fellow who was yeah, the, bit the, of, the bit of meditation, bit of visualization, yeah, all that and, sort of and, stuff. And, and, and I remember watching an interview when when David Parkin said that, and I just had this picture of 
what on earth would Val Perovic and Celis McClure and uh, Jimmy Buckley uh, be doing flat on their back meditating? I mean, it's like I can sort of understand why they'd be flat on their back after a big night on the squirt the night before. Surely not um, before a grand final, Surely not before a grand final. Uh, but uh, those were the days when, when the Carlton, Carlton side played hard off the field and played on it. Uh, they, they play do. the Cats this week. Um, Cats well beaten by Collingwood, who do look very good. There were some early talk algorithms and all this sort of nonsense that Collingwood were going to drop back to the pack after having um, a season last year where they won a lot of games uh, by very small margins. Well, they didn't win uh, uh, didn't win uh, a Friday night's game by a small margin. They won it by a big margin over the reigning premiers, and they look very, very good. They did um, look good, didn't they? Yeah, they did. Um, our early days, of course. Our friend, our friend Grant will be booking his tickets for Melbourne for the, for September. Oh, I think oh, they, they do get carried away, don't they? Richmond and 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 Carlton, of course. First game, uh, a a fairly disappointing draw. I think probably both sides would be disappointed with that. Um, uh, both sides have you know great forward assets, and uh, it was a very low scoring game. Um, uh, I, I really enjoyed North Melbourne's win over West Coast Eagles. 35 degrees outside on the Saturday afternoon outside Docklands and uh, they had the roof cut, so they reckon it was about 45 inside. And uh, North uh, got the chocolates under their new coach, uh, Alistair Clarkson. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it, it was a good sign because... What you see with uh, a lot of a lot of uh, sides who've been coached in particular ways with a new coach is that that game plan can just degenerate or disintegrate under a bit of pressure, but they hung in there. Um, and um, uh, yeah, yeah so. that, that's that's a thing with with new coaches and new game plans. They tend to start games well, but they yeah. they find that you know as as they get tired and and the pressure goes on, they revert to their old habits and forget the new game plan. Indeed. Um, uh, look, I did. I actually watched the replay of uh, uh, the, the the ODI. You weren't terribly excited about it, but the, the the ODI series, and I think it's only three games. I may be wrong, but uh, I think there's one more tonight. Isn't yeah, there's one tonight, and, and so there's definitely three. But uh, I, I don't think it's a best of five. I think it's best of three. Uh, India won uh, the first game. Uh, some very good performances from Stark and Mitch Marsh in that first game. And then the second game came along and we were just reminded just how good a player Mitchell Stark is. Um, the, the, the Indians were, I think uh, the, the Shubman Gill was out, uh, was, was out early to a bad shot to Stark. So, But they were one with Coley and Sharma batting they were one for 30 off about four overs and looked like they were just cruising. And then Stark just went bang, 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 bang. Uh, and by the end of his first spell, which I think was five, maybe six overs, he had sort of four for, four for 28. Um, the ball wasn't doing a whole lot, Jack. Well, you know, the, the ball wasn't sw- it was swinging a little. Um, there was nothing sideways off the deck. Uh, and... Um, and the game played in the eastern, eastern part of India. It might have been a bit humid, uh, but there wasn't exaggerated amount of swing. He just, when he gets it on on the spot and just does a little bit with it, he becomes almost unplayable. I couldn't believe it when I um, uh, walked into the pub to catch a bit of it on the telly and I had a look at the pick, pitch. Uh, 
<laughs> it looked like the Gabba. It it did, except to say, it, you know, it was a straw coloured, straw coloured, good covering of grass. Uh, was scuffing up a bit, even just uh, with uh, uh, with one day's play. Uh, <coughs> um, but um, uh, it, it really, the you know, you could look at Stark's figures. It's the ninth time he's got a five for an ODI for, yeah. for a start, which is extraordinary. Um, you could look at his figures and say the conditions suited him. I, I'd suggest that the conditions in Mumbai in the first game suited him more. Um, yeah. But he, 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 you know, Mitchell Johnson was commentating. He's a, a reasonable left arm bowler himself in, in his day, and he was saying, "Oh, he's just not quite there. He's not quite there." And um, you know, he's just got to get his lengths right because uh, um, Coley and uh, Coley and Sharma were giving him a little bit of tap. And uh, then he went bang Sharma. Then he then the new bloke came in. Um, uh, Silver Nakuma came in. He's got him now. Two first ball globes, both same left, just uh, stuck in front, stunk in front of the wickets. Uh, and then he just went on. Um, very good effort. And then Mitchell Marsh, Jack. I, I, I don't reckon I've seen a bloke hit the ball cleaner and harder than him. He just yes, really gives it a tap. When he's in a ball straight, he just looks sensational. Um, pulls the ball well. He's, in, he's been in fantastic form for Western Australia. We probably haven't seen nearly enough of his good cricket at test level. Um, but um, but suspect, as a white ball suspect, player, he, he is a sensation. I suspect we won't see him at test level now. I think Cameron no, Green's no, got that spot. I think those spot. days have passed. Of course, his brother Sean just, just uh, retired from a very, very long international and uh, national career um, and uh, pretty good one at that too. Um, uh, and, of course, we did see the Smith catch, which is probably one of the best. Uh, that was off the bowling of, um, oh, the New South Wales uh, medium pacer, uh, Sean Abbott. Um, um, brilliant uh, full-length dive, left-handed catch. Do you see it? Can we just pause for a moment? Yeah, look, it was just a wonderful catch. Did you see it? Yeah, it did. Yeah, yeah. Um, just a wonderful catch. He's a great fieldsman. He's probably put a couple down that he would hate in the last six months. All cricketers put down catches. Um, yeah, he, he was just going through a rough patch there in the early test matches, I thought, this in this series. Oh, he took, took some rippers too. He's uh, a great cricketer. Same time, yeah. Um, and, uh, and look, uh, they, they only chased... Uh, they only chased 100, I think 117 uh, in the second ODI and uh, 11 overs, wasn't it? Yeah, I think they got them in 10. Yeah, uh, <coughs> Mitchell Marsh and, uh, and Travis Head. It does uh, raise the question, Jack. I mean, it's not white ball, different from red ball, but um, uh, Travis Head, I can't. You know, I've just got to. I've got to see him as the opener for Australia. As Kawaja is fit, and he's only just got a calf, got plenty of time to get over it. You would imagine be the opener uh, in the Ashes and, and and the Test Championship. So where does that lead, Dave Warner? Um, I think the, the Father Time might have caught up with him. I think you might be right. We will see uh, now. Um, uh, in the rugby league, Jack, have you been watching much of much much of the league at all? We've seen we the do. Dolphins. I think the Dolphins play the the uh, uh, the uh, the Broncos this week, Jack, and the Dolphins are going pretty well. 
I see a little bit of the highlights. We don't get much of it on the telly up here anymore. Yeah, Dolphins will play off in the new Derby. Derby? I don't know. Queenslanders are going to have to get their heads around all of that. Rabbitohs play uh, Manly uh, <coughs> on the Saturday night. Um, Storm, what Tigers on Friday night at home. Storm, you'd reckon, would go pretty well there. And, of course, they're playing Thursday footy like they are in the AFL. And the Eels will play the Panthers, and it should be a very, very fine game. Um, but, yes, that's the one to watch, the Dolphins v. the Broncos. And uh, where are they playing? Oh, they're playing that at um, at um, at uh, Suncorp. Yeah, so uh, that will be one to watch, a bit of history there. Indeed. Uh, we do have some readers' letters, which I just want to draw attention to. No, they weren't uh, super contentious, but reader Catherine, some reader, listener. Catherine, uh, she just uh, dropped me a line saying, going back a few episodes when we talked about school closures, um, and uh, you're all you're all opposed to it. School closures were, among other things, you mentioned, says Catherine, about social distancing both at school and getting to school. Shops could trade, but they could limit customer numbers. Not as easy to do in schools. This was part of the USA pandemic modelling and planning under Bush and Obama. Uh, quick comment from you, Jack. Uh, we are doing a bit of review mirror stuff, aren't we, there, when we get we to are. school closures, yeah. Uh, certainly in that 2020 period. Um, and, of course, Ray, who, who loves the show, Jack, Ray, you'd know him as Baseman, uh, he wrote me a bit of an email saying, going back two weeks ago, you would posed a question to me from uh, an American mate of yours about uh, China, about uh, uh, Donald Trump's gifts in foreign policy vis-a-vis China, and uh, and uh, Baseman just wrote me an email saying, "Just love the biff, bring back the biff." He said. <laughs> now we, Jack, we do just, our best. Yeah, we are doing our best. Uh, look, and just um, uh, just uh, to just take us out, Jack. What what has caught your eye this week? Oh, the best thing on Twitter this week was from the wonderful Titania McGrath. Um, uh, the the intersectional poet, she calls herself. Dog owners, stop saying good boy and good girl to your pets. This kind of gendered language is normalising the myth of canine sexual dimorphism and delegitimise the lived experience of trans dogs. Now, most importantly, um, have you ever seen The View? No. I don't even know what it is. Um, oh, well, a, yeah, I did. No, look, I know what you mean. Panel show in America. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's, yeah, it's yeah, an yeah. all women panel show. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And um, one, of, one of their number, Anna Navarro, who's meant to be a sort of Republican, I think, uh, she was saying Fox News every single day goes after Kamala Harris, trying to portray her as a, an inept and some kind of a bumbling fool. She's not. They've got to stop playing into the hands of those people who cannot stand that she's the first woman of colour vice president. Now, I know that you work for the same people who run Fox News, Mr Murdoch, and, and if they're running a campaign to make Kamala Harris look like a, some kind of bumbling fool, um, I'm just wondering, I want you to have a chat to Rupert when he rings to tell you what to write in your next column. I'll and say, tomorrow morning. Yeah. I, I've got a mate, Hong Kong Jack. He will run that program for you um, <laughs> uh, to make Kamala Harris look like a bumbling fool and for a very reasonable fee. He's not a it's, hard man. It, look, I, I think what you're saying is it's not that hard to do, Jack. You basically yeah, I, I just, think I could do it from here in Hong Kong. I, I think you just have to put a camera on her and wait for her to make a public utterance. And yeah. that's it. Um, and and just, just one final thing before we go. 
it's from it's from Finland. The University of Helsinki um, will confer an honorary doctorate in theology on the Swedish truant um, Greta Thunberg, which no. just goes to show you the climate stuff is a religion. Well, she did miss out on a lot of education, Jack. So it's a good thing. All right, thank you. Well, we're just going to have to wrap up there, and your <coughs> and your. Uh, uh, hard uh, thoughts on climate change and energy policy, but uh, there's a bit of reality about what you say there uh, in terms of consumption. I think that uh, that's a bit, a bit, a bit of uh, been a bit of an eye opener for me. I uh, want to thank you for your thoughts today, Jack. Um, also, um, uh, we just want to remind our uh, listeners that uh, if you want to get in touch with us, we would love to hear from you. You can drop me a line. Uh, on uh, the conditional release program at gmail.com uh, or indeed you can hit me up on Twitter on my DMs. And uh, and Jack, how do we get hold of you? Uh, find me on Substack. Uh, Hong Kong Jack, it's on Substack. You'll find me. Hong Kong Jack on Substack. Thank you very much. And thank you very much for listening with us, uh, listeners, and we'll join you next week. See ya. Cheers.